We're going to start this morning by reading Joshua chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. So listen to God's word as we begin. Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Geshurites, from the Sihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five, of, five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the, and the Miriah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baalgad below Mount Hermon to Lebohamoth, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misrophet Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half-tribe of Manasseh. With the other half-tribe of, of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medabah, as far as Dibon and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and all the region of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Selica, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edre, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. This is God's word. In our second hymn this morning, we sang these famous words, Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. This song is Isaac Watts's uh, version of Psalm 90. That's a famous psalm of Moses, which is a, a meditation on the brevity of human life. So in that psalm, Moses prays, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's fascinating to think of Moses' own experience of numbering his days. He had lots of time to think about his own death since God had told him he would die without entering the promised land. So Psalm 90 was a very personal prayer for Moses. The book of Joshua begins with Moses' death and it ends with Joshua's death. So in that sense, it's a book that's very concerned with the question of numbering days. Among these men of numbered days... How will the faith be passed down? As we enter the book of Joshua, the question is, will the commands of Moses that he wrote, received and, and gave in the wilderness, will they be kept by Joshua and the Israelites as they enter the land? Now at this point in Joshua, we can safely say that Joshua has faithfully kept those words. But with the opening of chapter 13 and reading that Joshua is old and advanced in years, we're led to wonder... What's going to happen to the generation after Joshua? Will Joshua and Israel number their days and get a heart of wisdom? As we see here, there is pressing work for Joshua to do before he dies. It was Joshua's job not just to lead the people into the land and oversee the conquest, but he's to oversee this process of dividing up the land of Canaan and giving a portion to each of the tribes of Israel. And so the speech that the Lord begins in verse 1, and it ends in verses 6 and 7 with this, these two commands. Allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. That's the first one. Allot and divide. 
divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Those are Joshua's marching orders, really, for the next several chapters. For Joshua and this generation, wisdom looks like remaining vigilant in trusting God and obeying God's commands as they carry out this allotment and possession of the land. And we see exactly how important this vigilance is in the second half of God's opening line. So he starts off telling him, you're old. And then he says, and there remains yet very much land to possess. So the past several weeks, we've been looking at the conquest, this initial foray into Canaan where Israel wins all these victories over different parts of the land. But now it's clear that that was only a partial conquest. As great as it was and as supernatural as it was, there's still much land yet to be possessed. Not only that, we see that even places where Israel has has uh, defeated people and driven people out, that was only really a temporary victory. They didn't maintain control over these areas. And so, just as you might expect, you know, people flee before the coming hordes, and once the coming hordes pass through, they return to fill in the places where they once were. And so much more work needed to be done to drive out the idolatrous peoples of Canaan and to take possession of the land. And so the Lord is calling Joshua to to draw these boundaries for each tribe and then to hand over the task of possessing the land and driving out the inhabitants to the tribes themselves. And so the process that began in Joshua 6 through 12 is far from complete, and it's a process that will take more time than Joshua has left on earth. It's a process that we read about continuing into the book of Judges after Joshua has died. And the vital point to see here is that the complete conquest of the land will depend on the ongoing faithfulness of Israel's future generations. It's not just about what Joshua can do. It's about what Joshua and his generation passes down to their offspring. And this raises the key conflict of these chapters. Israel has made a a very good beginning in the land, but will it continue? They've been blessed with a godly leader like Joshua, who we've read did everything the Lord had commanded. Remember that from last week, how the author takes pains to say that in verse 15 of chapter 11, Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded through Moses. So they've begun with faithfulness. But time is bearing its sons away. Will they continue in faithfulness? Will the next generation pick up where Joshua and Moses left off? You could say that's the key question of the second half of the book of Joshua. You could see that's the key question of the rest of Israel's history from this point on. These chapters put the question to us by showing us examples of faithfulness and unbelief. And this morning, we're going to look at our passage under those two headings. We're going to look at the nature of true faith and the nature of unbelief. There's lots to explain here, so we'll spend most of our time looking at the nature of true faith and then the nature of unbelief. These chapters contain long lists of Israelite place names and tribal allotments. And as you've already heard, reading those is not my strong suit. So we'll mostly not read these long lists of tribal allotments, but we will dive into the most important passages in chapters 13 through 17. We're going to do that to look at the nature of true faith and the nature of unbelief. So as we look at the nature of true faith here, we need to start by seeing that faith and obedience are inextricably linked in this passage. The way that we see faith is by looking at the actions of the main characters in these chapters. Chapter 13 began with this speech of the Lord to Joshua, and then we read that little paragraph that's a summary of the rest of chapter, seven, of chapter 13, where we read about Moses' work on the eastern side of the Jordan. So we read, about the, we read the speech from God, and then we read this paragraph summary, and after that paragraph summary, we kind of drill down and we get more detail about what Moses does on the eastern side of the Jordan. And the Lord provides this because the Lord is showing us in Moses 
how to recognize what a faithful Israelite looks like. Normally Moses does function as a very unique kind of person in the Bible, someone that no one really might think to imitate because of his access to God and as his role as mediator of the covenant. But I think in this chapter, he's, he's meant to show us what a faithful Israelite looks like during this time of conquest. Now on the surface, one of the reasons for providing this long chapter 13, this yet another summary of the, of the, the allotment of the lands on the other side of the Jordan, it's here for the sake of accounting, right? We're meant to be very precise in Joshua about which tribes are getting land. And so now we're told here in chapter 13, two and a half tribes, that is Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh, they got land on the other side, and here's how, here's how it was allotted. That's what chapter 13 is doing. So it's very careful to account for who gets land. And we'll also, we also find, as we read, that the tribe of Levi doesn't get land. So even though we took away Joseph and added two, we're also taking away Levi from land, tribes that get allotments. So again, math is important here. And we have two and a half tribes on one side of the Jordan and nine and a half on the, on the western side of the Jordan. The Lord speaks with care here about who gets what because he is a God who follows through on his words. So again, this chapter is telling us kind of on a surface level of just how this accounting works, but on a deeper level of what faithfulness looks like. And we see what faithfulness looks like, again, with the actions attributed to Moses. Look at the, I want to look at the verbs briefly that are attributed to Moses. So it says in verse 8 of chapter 13, With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So what does a faithful Israelite do? He gives land. We'll look at this more in a second. He gave them land. And then we get this geographical description of the land. And another thing Moses does in, in verse 12, we read that these kings, Moses had struck and driven out. So Moses does two things. He drives out the enemies of the Lord and he gives the land to these eastern tribes. That's the summary. And those ideas are repeated throughout chapter 13. If you look at the verbs for Moses, Moses gave in verse 15. He gave the inheritance to the tribe of Reuben. In verse 21, Moses defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites. In verse 24, Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad. And finally in 29, Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So Moses models for us what a faithful Israelite is supposed to do in this time of conquest, in this period of God's plan of salvation. Trusting the Lord's power, he drives out the Lord's enemies, and then he takes possession of the land and gives it to God's people. Again, Moses is a unique leader, but he is also an example of faithfulness. Isn't it faithfulness in this conquest? He drives out and he gives. We're going to see how this applies to Caleb in chapter 14. But we also see as Moses drives out and gives in faith, many Israelites do not imitate Moses. So after this summary of Moses' work east of the Jordan in verses 8 through 12, we get the ominous contrast of verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Maccathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. This isn't just a historical detail to explain to readers of Joshua why there are still some Geshurites around. Notice, though, also that the subject of this sentence has changed. It's no longer Moses doing stuff. It's the Israelites doing stuff, the people of Israel. So those who received an inheritance from Moses, they failed to imitate him. They had the advantage because they had a faithful leader like Moses, and they failed to follow in his footsteps. They failed to drive out these clans. And these people lived among the Israelites for generations, and they proved to be a snare to God's people. So in chapter 13, Moses presents us with two ways of living during the time of conquest, to drive out and to give. 
Israel in general is said to have failed to drive out the inhabitants. That's the key things I'm trying to establish here. One way, Moses' way, is faith. The other way is unbelief. And we can say that because of what God himself says about this work of driving out in verse 6 of chapter 13. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. The act of an Israelite driving out the inhabitants of Canaan is a work of faith in God's promises. And so a failure to drive out the Canaanites doesn't simply mean, you know, the Israelites, they gave it their best shot, but they just came up short. No, it represents a failure of faith and obedience to the Lord. As long as Israel is trusting in the Lord and applying themselves to the work God has set before him for them, they will possess the land. They will drive out the inhabitants. God will do that for them just as he did it for Moses. After defining faithfulness here for us in chapter 13, in 14, we get a specific example. And so we switch from being on the eastern side of the Jordan to the western side of the Jordan. The time has come to allot this land that Israel has conquered. He begins by allotting lands to the tribe of Judah. That's what we find in chapters 14 and 15. And then he moves on to Joseph's tribes. So remember, Joseph receives this double blessing. He'll have both, both of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are represented in the tribal allotment. So chapters 16 and 17 will be the allotments for Ephraim and Manasseh. It's a fairly simple structure, but we have some interesting kind of complications thrown in. Because as soon as Joshua begins allotting the land to, to Judah, as the people of Judah came, it says in verse 6, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, shows up. Caleb is in many ways Joshua's counterpart. So there were these 12, faith, 12 spies sent out by Moses in Numbers 13, and Caleb and Joshua were the two faithful ones. They believed in the Lord's promise and said, we should go in and take the land. But Caleb after that in Numbers 13 and 14 really kind of falls from the scene. We don't hear a lot of Caleb in the rest of Numbers or Deuteronomy or even in Joshua until right now. Caleb pops back up. We read that Caleb is a son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and that's a weird thing to hear because the Kenizzites were an ancient Canaanite clan. They go back to, to uh, Genesis 15 and Abraham drives out the Kenizzites. So we don't know for sure. Does this mean that, that Caleb has this Canaanite lineage? Some scholars think, well, this just means he was the son of Kenaz, and that was just a family name in Israel, and it's just kind of a weird coincidence. But it's pretty interesting to think about Caleb, this example of faith, as also having Gentile Canaanite heritage, just like Rahab did. Scholars are divided on whether he's Canaanite or Judahite. But at this point, he's clearly been incorporated into the people of Judah. He is a Judahite, whether he has this Canaanite heritage or not. So with that background in mind, let's read Joshua chapter 14, and we'll get kind of a flavor of, this, of the beginning of this allotment of lands on the western side of the Jordan. So Joshua chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only to cities to dwell in, with their pasture land for their livestock and their sustenance. The people of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses, they allotted the land. The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. 
And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in that day Moses sent me. My strength now is, my str- is as my strength then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. I want us here to pay special attention to Caleb's speech, which is there in verses 6 through 12. Notice that his appeal is based on what the Lord had spoken through Moses. He cites his own faithfulness, his wholehearted faithfulness, and Moses' assessment of his wholehearted faithfulness. And then in the narrative afterwards, we hear of of his wholehearted faithfulness. He confesses that it's the Lord who's kept him alive. It's the Lord who's given him strength back when he was 40 and now that he's 85. He's still as strong as he ever was and he's eager to use that strength to go and take the land that the Lord has promised to him. The country of the Anakim that so scared the people and the spies back in Numbers 13. And notice how he ends his speech in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Now that, that maybe sounds like Caleb's kind of doubtful of the Lord's presence, but it's only, I think, Caleb's doubt of himself. You know, the Lord will be with me as long as I am faithful to him. He's, he trusts in the Lord's presence. He trusts in the Lord's promise. He is ready to go and take what he calls fortified cities. Now, this is no small task he's taken for himself, but he's ready to go, confident in the Lord's promises. And notice what he's confident that he will do if the Lord is with him. He will drive out these Anakim from the cities. That's the same thing that Moses did, right, on the other side of the Jordan. He drove out the inhabitants of the other side of the Jordan. The nice thing about chapters 13 through 17 is not only do we get Caleb's speech about what he may do, we get the conclusion of what he does. So skip down to chapter 15, verses 13 through 19. After we have some initial allotment and descriptions of the land that God gives to Judah, we find this in verse 13 of chapter 15. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Aksa my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now notice the verbs for Caleb. He's driven out these people of Anak, and he gives land, right? He's imitating Moses. Doing exactly the same things that Moses did. It's striking how many times we have reference to Caleb giving, right? His daughter says, give several times, and then the text says, he gave, right? He gave first his daughter to faithful Othniel as a wife, and then he gives land and this spring of water to his new son in law and daughter. Caleb is now shown to us as a faithful Israelite, right? 
Just like Joshua, just like Moses, he dispossesses these inhabitants and he gives their land away. We could say that Caleb comes up with a way to incentivize other Israelites to faithfulness, right? So he offers Aksa as his wife to whoever takes this city. And that this isn't some sort of bare transaction. It's a way of identifying a faithful man. If Othniel comes and he, if he takes the land, if he dispossesses these inhabitants, he's proving himself faithful. Caleb just found a way for a dad to find a godly husband for his wife and incentivize one of his fellow Israelites to take the land. This is what a, a healthy, fruitful Israelite looks like. He's taking the land and giving it. He's, he's engendering all around him, even among his children, a desire for what God has promised. He shows us the nature of true faith. Just consider some of the things Caleb does. Caleb's true faith. His true faith looks backward to the way the Lord sustains and gives life. True faith is a thankful faith, right? Doesn't Caleb say that? The Lord's kept me alive. I'm strong because of what the Lord has done for me. The Lord has made promises to me. True faith sees God as the ultimate giver of life. That's where Caleb's confidence is. We might say this is the most basic kind of faith a human being can have. Faith in God as creator and sustainer. This is what's so often missing among our own neighbors, right? They've adopted a a secularist, materialistic worldview. They have no sense of God as their maker, that their life is a gift from God. Are you a thankful person? And and to whom are you thankful? You offer just thankfulness up there to to the air? Or do you recognize God has given you life? Do you recognize God's gift of life? So true faith looks backward upon God's gift of sustaining life. And true faith also, we see, is rooted in God's word and the promises of God. You notice how when Caleb makes his appeal, he makes his appeal based on what God had spoken to him, how God had promised to him, how Moses had sworn an oath to him. Caleb is convinced. He's building his whole life on God's promises. We're going to skip ahead just now to see this in another example in chapter 17. We get this example of the the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad was the great-great-grandson of Manasseh, and he died without sons. It says in Numbers that he died for sins, but not the same sins that everybody else died for, which is an interesting detail. But these daughters of Zelophehad, they realize we're left now. We have no brother to kind of inherit for us. We have no household to belong to. And so they come to Moses and Eliezer, the high priest, back in Numbers 27, and they make a special request for inheritance of of land. And we read this, what they said in, in chapter 27, verse 5 of Numbers. After they make this request, Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance from their father to them. And even in Numbers, we get more examples of these daughters' faith. They decide that these daughters must marry someone within their own tribe so they don't have lands going that should be for Manasseh going to some other tribe. And we read that they, they obeyed all that the Lord spoke to them about that as well. But more importantly for our purposes, here the daughters of Zelophehad show up again in Joshua 17, verse 3. And just as they had first approached Moses and Eleazar in Numbers, now they come to Joshua and Eleazar, and they lay claim to what the Lord promised. They said to Joshua, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So, according to the mouth of the Lord, Joshua gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. You see how true faith is built on God's word. It clings to God's unchanging word. It's confident that God cannot go back on what he's promised. When we believe like Caleb believed or like the daughters of Zelophehad believed, we rest our lives on what God has spoken. And we realize too, God's word is not mainly about inheriting land in Canaan. Right? That's not the main thing we're believing. We're not believing that for ourselves. His word 
is the word of grace and salvation. That's what Caleb is really after. Life with God, fellowship with God. It may be that God will be with me. He's confident that life lies in God's word. And for us, it is the same. Life, true life, spiritual life comes by faith in God's word. It comes by faith in Jesus, who is the living word. It's through Jesus that we receive the promises of forgiveness and eternal life. And so true faith, faith that clings to the word, faith that's built on the word, clings to Jesus, the Savior. True faith rests the weight of our lives on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our sake. That's what true faith does. That's the nature of true faith. So each of us should ask, what am I resting my life on? Am I resting my life on God's unchanging word in Christ or on something else? We also see that true faith is wholehearted faith. Just remember, again, notice how many times attention is drawn to the fact that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, with his whole self, he followed the Lord completely. He didn't have a divided heart. He was pure in heart. True faith is fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised, according to Romans chapter 4. It's not divided. It's completely convinced and completely devoted to the Lord. So there's no place for double-mindedness in our faith. There's no place for hedging our bets as we follow the Lord. True faith is also forward-looking faith that leads to obedience. Again, consider what Caleb took on for himself, this great task of following the Lord into the land and defeating these cities. Because of his faith, his faith in the Lord, that the Lord would be with him, he drove out the inhabitants of the land and gave it to his children. Now, we don't read anything about Caleb's suffering, what hardships he endured, but it is provocative to think about that opening psalm we read, where we, the psalmist confesses, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And then he says that surely the Lord will not let his Holy One see corruption. A line that refers to Jesus himself, right? Think about Jesus praying that psalm. Jesus saying, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, even as he sets his face to go towards Jerusalem. Do you see faith is obedient faith. It's forward-looking. It looks to say, God will be faithful to me, come what may. Whether it's conquering the fortified cities of the Anakim or facing suffering for my God. True faith is obedient faith, no matter the cost. So we see these characteristics of true faith. We can also see some of the effect of true faith. The effect of true faith seems to be to encourage more faith, right? Just as Caleb encouraged Othniel's obedience, and it seems he encouraged Oxa's desire for the land, Caleb's confidence in God was so great that he was happy and eager to enlist others in trusting God along with him. And Caleb is saying, come on in, the water's fine. This is the way of life. You don't have to worry. Am I, am I, risking, am I risking any kind of uh, ultimate danger by, by putting myself out there for the Lord? No, you're not. Whatever losses you endure for the sake of Christ, you gain in following him. Caleb's faith is contagious. He takes hold of this inheritance for himself and he, he encourages his children, take hold of it too. Is your faith contagious in the way that Caleb's faith was? Are you encouraging others to put their faith in God? Parents, as your children watch you trust in God, is it an encouragement to them to do the same? Or what about your coworkers or your neighbors? Do they see you trusting God? Do they, do they see your joy in what God has ordained and provided? Are you encouraging others with your life and your words to put their faith in God? We also see that Caleb enjoyed the presence of God as Pastor John prayed. He enjoyed the presence of God as he obeyed the Lord. The Lord was indeed with him. 
We might say this is the reward of true faith, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We read throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount that God rewards those who seek him, right? The Father sees and he rewards. And the reward is God himself. God gives us himself. The presence of God is our great reward. And we catch a glimpse of this. We didn't read these verses, but in what the Lord says about the Levites in chapter 13. So two times we say, we get attention drawn to the fact that the Levites didn't get an inheritance. And the reason they didn't get an inheritance is because the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. They function as kind of a stand-in for the whole people. This is what life in the land was all about for God's people, or it was supposed to be. It wasn't just about having, you know, their plot of ground. It was about enjoying the presence of the Lord. In both Caleb and his daughter and in the daughters of Zelophehad, we see this humble, confident faith, a joyful faith. They're so convinced that the Lord's promises are true, they're moved to, to take hold of what God has promised them and to march out in faith and obedience. We see their, their obedience to God is rooted in this confidence in what their God has promised. This is the model for what Israel's supposed to do. They are to be those who take hold of God's promises and walk out in faith. This is, if Israel's going to survive as a people, it's going to be through this model. And it's the same for us. Our lives must be built upon this same faith. Now, this, this call to faith isn't just for, for people who are religious or for people who call themselves Christians. It's for all people. All people are commanded to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Faith is a command for everyone. God calls all people everywhere to believe. And this, again, is not a, just a, a call to go to church or a call to be a good person at all. It's a call to believe that the Lord is the giver of life, that he gives this life through Christ, the one who died and rose again for his people. And so we have to ask, having seen the nature of true faith, do I have this faith? Am I walking in this way? But as we've already seen, this chapter doesn't only contain good examples. It only tells us of true faith, but it tells us of the nature of unbelief. And so in chapter 13, Israel in general, as we've already seen, is indicted for their failure to drive out these tribes, right? In chapters 14 through 17, we have three tribes of Israel mentioned. We have the, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Ephraim, and the tribe of Manasseh. And so in each case, we get uh, their allotments described and how, how, what lands they received, kind of the geographical boundaries. In, in Judah's case, we get this long list of cities and villages that they received. So the Lord is careful to make sure to these people exactly what they are being given. These words of Joshua kind of function as property deeds for each tribe. They, they are kind of documented in a in a inspired way. Here's what's yours, right? They're, they're given full encouragement to take advantage of what God's given them, and every boundary is, is, is described. And so they have every reason to trust and obey him and to drive out the inhabitants of these areas. But in each case, the author of Joshua notes their failure. So in chapter 15, verse 63, we are told that Judah failed to drive out the Jebusites around Jerusalem. In chapter 16, verse 10, we're told that Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. In chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, we read this after some of the cities and villages of Manasseh are described. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong... They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. These three tribes, Judah, Manasseh, and Ephraim, these are the greatest, most populous tribes, and really the most kind of important for the Bible story, and yet they failed to fully trust and obey the Lord. And this note about Manasseh is especially damning, because it tells us that they failed when they first entered the land, and even as they grew strong in number, they did not drive out the inhabitants they let them serve as forced laborers. 
these, these three tribes were weak in faith, even though they were strong in number, right? We read earlier how Caleb was strong, and he used his strength to drive out the land, but these three are weak. They failed to utterly drive out the Canaanites. So we have this general picture of failure and unbelief among these tribes. But then at the end of chapter 17, we get a specific example. So just like Caleb's specific example, we get a specific example here. It's beginning in verse 14. And here we have the people of Joseph. So it seems like both Ephraim and Manasseh band together to come to Joshua and bring him a complaint. Let's read this together. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves into the forest and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those of the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but only the hill country shall be yours. I'm sorry, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So the people of Joseph, they're not happy with their allotment. They speak here with this kind of collective singular. Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? I am a numerous people. Well, that's a far cry from Psalm 16. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The people of Joseph believe they need and deserve more than they've been allotted. They even seem to I think they misrepresent what they've been allotted. And they're finding the inhabitants of the land too difficult to drive out because they have chariots of iron. Now, it seems a, a bit of a strange conversation because it, it does initially seem like Joshua grants their request. In verse 17, when he says, You are a numerous people, you shall not have one allotment only. It sounds like he's granting their request, but when you look closely, it really doesn't seem like Joshua's changed the same basic message. If you want more room, take it. You're powerful and numerous, right? Clear the forests, right? It's interesting to note that uh, the passage we read earlier that is maybe about Absalom, that Absalom dies in the forests of Ephraim. Maybe these forests were never cleared, and that's part of how Af Absalom died. The people of Joseph direct their complaint at Joshua, but remember, it was the Lord who was overseeing the division of the land by casting lots. So whether the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh acknowledged it or not, their complaint here is against God himself. And this is a key part of the nature of unbelief. In our unbelief, we accuse God of being unfair. We look at what he's provided and we find fault with it. It's a good thing to ask. In what ways am I accusing God? I almost always find when I'm talking with someone who may be struggling in this way that they, we all start in a place of self-deception about this, right? We might say, I'm frustrated. Well, what are you frustrated about? Well, just life, right? We don't want to admit how far up the chain our frustration really goes. We're maybe rightly scared to say the words, I'm angry at God, but it's the truth. How do you recognize that your complaints about life are complaints with God? Have you considered that your discontentment is an accusation against your good and loving Heavenly Father? Do you recognize the nature of unbelief within you? So unbelief accuses God. It doubts God's good provision. And unbelief also doubts God's power. These tribes of Joseph didn't think they could drive out the Canaanites, right? They said the Canaanites have chariots of iron. But remember what we read last week, how these numerous tribes came against the Israelites with their chariots. And Joshua defeated them, and he hamstrung the horses and burned the chariots. These 
these tribes of Joseph, they're coming up with excuses. They're saying to God and to Joshua, you know, faithfulness and obedience, it's just not an option for us because of these circumstances that I'm in. They've got a whole list of reasons for why they can't obey God's commands and why they won't. Does that describe you? Do you recognize the nature of unbelief in you? This final episode has no resolution. We don't get any kind of ending to this story, this conversation. Faithful readers are meant to leave this thinking about their own faith. The first readers of Joshua could read this and think, is my response to what God has given me, is it like Caleb's or like these people of Joseph? Am I thanking God for the good gift of life that he's given me or am I complaining about the inheritance I've received? Am I living by faith in God's promises or am I doubting him? Am I obeying or disobeying? What seems more operative in your life? Humble confidence in God's word or skepticism about the wisdom of God's ways? As New Testament readers, we only need to tweak these things a little bit, right? We don't, we're not threatened by Canaanites, but we live in a hostile world. We live amidst the presence and power of sin. We don't have a plot of land in Canaan to complain about, but we do complain and we have discontentment with what God has provided for us. These things are all too common in our lives. These chapters help us, I think, in at least two ways. They clarify the nature of sin, and they raise the stakes for our disobedience. We can look back on this, and we can see the beauty of Caleb's faith. Right? It's just this life-giving thing. And by contrast, we see the, the tragic nature and the foolish nature of Joseph's complaint. This kind of clarity is really helpful because it shows us today how foolish our sin is. When we fail to deal with our sin, we're giving in to the ways of the world. When we complain about our lot in life, we are being as foolish as the people of Joseph, and perhaps more so. We're making a tragic exchange. We miss out on opportunities to see God meet our needs in ways we could never have expected. We deprive ourselves of fellowship with God. And it may be if our sin pattern is marked by no true repentance, our unbelief and sin are signs of our own condemnation before God. This passage helps us to see the foolishness of sin clearly. Ultimately, the people of Joseph were part of the northern kingdom of Israel who were finally destroyed by God's enemies and the Assyrians. So their unbelief that we see the seed of here in Joshua 15 resulted in their division and idolatry and finally complete judgment from God. Do we understand the weight of our sin? Do we have a right sense that our sins lead to destruction? These chapters in Joshua show us how serious it is to doubt God and disobey him. These are not things to play with. We can see in Israel's life how their faith in God or lack of faith had very real consequences for their life in the land. They would either prosper in faithfulness or descend into compromise and idolatry and destruction. And sadly, we know that for the most part, it did descend into idolatry and destruction. Sin is serious. It wounds and it scars it's right that as you hear this Christian, you should throw yourself on the mercy of God. This should drive us back to Christ. But even so, let us be wary of false repentance. Imagine the people of Joseph, after this conversation, realizing that they, they were on the wrong side of that conversation. They, they realize their sin. They, they go to the tabernacle and bring some great offerings to the Lord but then they leave, they return to you know, the safe part of their territory, and they never attempt to drive out the inhabitants of the land. 
If they had done that, they would have left the tabernacle worse off than when they entered, thinking that they were at peace with God because of their sacrifice, but having no desire to follow the Lord in obedience. You see, our encounter with the grace of Christ should transform us. The forgiveness we receive at the cross should grow our hatred of sin. And if God's grace doesn't grow that hatred and doesn't give us courage and resolve to fight sin, it may be that we're trying to use Jesus just to feel better about ourselves. So it should be impossible to look at the cross and not see the ugliness of sin. Sin judged by God in Christ, born by Christ in his suffering. We should ask, how can I claim to have fellowship with the one who bled and died for me? He bled and died to pay the price of my sin while continuing to indulge in sin and protect sin and refusing to acknowledge sin. Paul says in Romans 6 that the grace of God frees us from sin's power. To those who say, if grace abounds, let's sin all the more, he says, by no means. And so Joshua 13 through 17, it should lead us to self-examination. Am I living by faith as one freed from the power of sin by Christ's work? Or am I willingly re-enslaving myself to the power of sin and death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and insight into this question as we examine our faith. Expose the ways that we are willingly re-enslaving ourselves. Father, we need the encouragement that Caleb had. We need to endure in it, in joyful confidence in your word. I pray for myself and for these dear brothers and sisters that this word we've heard won't, won't come in one air and go out the other, but it would stick with us, that we would persist in trusting in your gracious word that comes to us through Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.